We're in a sermon series where the beat goes on and on, and it's Jesus talking to us. It's Sermon on the Mount. And so this morning we've come to two verses in chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 31 and 32. If you do not have a Bible or an app on your phone, you can take a Bible with into the road, and that Bible is yours to keep. Hear God's Word. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to pray for us. So, Father, we're um, talking through the things that your son talked about, and these are not easy things. They're very, very difficult, and um, I think it would be just a very common, natural, maybe even healthy fear for a lot of us just to be really apprehensive right now, especially if divorce in any way is a part of our past, what we grew up in, what we have experienced, what we've even done. And um, so we're going to need help for you to allow us to be present here and to not check out, not try to get away from all the feelings that's going to come with the stuff we're going to talk about. And so I pray that you would come and you would speak to us, um, that I would get out of the way, and that you would make very clear what it is you want us to hear. And especially even for those who aren't married, um, who haven't experienced this, like I pray that this would be able to land for all of us in this room somehow, some way. Uh, we'd walk away compelled, convinced, convicted, moved to want to live more like you, Jesus. And in your name we pray. Amen. Have I ever told you guys how I met Suzanne? I have? No? All right. So Patty wants to hear it. Okay. So uh, here's how I met Suzanne. I was, uh, I was 23. I was 23 and you were 19. So I was looking at Suzanne. I'm going to need help with this. She was 19. And um, in Tupelo, Mississippi, that's where we met, and uh, in the mall. And this is when malls were still a thing, right? Like it, it was just the place to be. It was, it was kind of dying, but it was still the place to be, especially in Tupelo. You didn't have many options in Tupelo to go and hang out. Um, and I'm sorry to put it this way, but the, the kind of local like meat market where all the dudes went and oogled at girls was a place called, uh, I know it's horrible, I'm sorry, but it's just the truth, it's what happened, was uh, Women's and Men's Express. Anybody ever been to an express department store? <laughs> <laughs> Good. Keep it that way. All right. So, uh, Express, though, back in the day was, was, was it. Like, that was the place to go. And not just to get your clothes, but maybe to have a, a meet-cute, and who knows what could happen in, in your future. And so, I was working overseas. I came home for a brief furlough for about two or three months, and um, I, was, uh, I went into this clothing store, Express, and I... I went there for shirts, but I'll be honest, my intentions weren't completely noble, all right? And so I went there to get a shirt, at least I thought, because, you know, I'm always on the lookout for good threads. Uh, and uh, I saw Suzanne, and Suzanne was managing this express clothing store, and she looked good, all right? So I thought, all right, like, now you have to imagine, don't, don't think this version of Robin, all right? <laughs> don't think this version of Robin. Um, still tasteful style, all right, come on. Um, but like, y'all, I had, I had like a black, full, curly mullet. 
like on purpose. It was glorious. And like, um, and I wore medium shirts because I could fit into them, right? You get what I'm saying? Like, okay, like anybody, anybody in your late 30s or 40s, remember when you could wear the, the, the size smaller than you do now? All right, exactly. Yeah, so whatever, Josh, your metabolism's incredible. Please, I don't hear that. Get out of here. <laughs> so I remember though, like it was just, just life was good, hair flowing, high metabolism, rocking medium shirts, like it was great. And, um, and I saw her though, and I kind of got like starstruck, like I got stunned. And I was just like staring at a wall and she came over and she's like, can I help you? And I'm like, yes, please. And so I basically tried to get these two shirts and she didn't have them. She goes, hey, come back later on. I'm, I'm sure we'll have them again later on in the next week or two. I came back the next day and she saw me again. I still didn't have them. She still didn't have them. I came back the day after that. I came for like four days straight to get the same shirt, and every day trying to psych myself up thinking, I'm going to ask her out. I'm going to ask her out. And I remember hiding behind a sunglass kiosk in front of Express, hiding there, thinking, I've got to go talk to her. I've got to go talk to her. And I remember I like went inside, I looked at her, and I turned around and walked straight out. <laughs> and I got in the car, and I pulled out my big old Nokia cell phone. Remember those? That big old flip phone? And I remember I was sitting there with it, and I, I, I'm not joking, I had this pep talk to myself out loud. You're Robin Abity, dang it. Call this girl. Call her. You're Robin. You're Robin Abity. You can do this. And that's what I did. I called her up, and I was like, hey, so I was just thinking, you maybe just kind of want to go out sometime, and that's, you know, whatever. But no big deal if you can't. We can just be friends. I don't really care. You don't really know my last name. Okay, bye. And, and basically, she said yes. And, uh, and then we went out on our first date, and it didn't go well. Um, she actually left the date early. Um, I can't tell you the story because it includes, like, things I did that were really stupid. And also, anyway, that's another story for another time. You can get it off, off the record here. But basically, um, she went out with me again later on, and it, it worked out. Now, here's the deal. Throughout, though, our dating, um, and then leading up even into getting engaged, I always was struggling, though, with commitment. Like, not that I would go and cheat on her at all, but inside, I would just be super, super restless. And I experienced this with any person I was ever dating or with, and I just thought, oh my God, like, what am I doing? What am I doing? And I was working overseas in Amman, Jordan, where I was, like, studying Arabic and was going to do this whole thing at plant churches, and my colleagues, people I worked with, I would, like, lay out the story to them time and again, like, here's this wonderful girl. I think I want to be with her. I'm not really sure. And I remember um, coming home one time thinking, you know what? I'm just going to break up with her because it's not going to work out. And I was like making up reasons. Like, I think it was like, you know what? She's just not like culturally like in tune the way I am. That's, that's what it is. And she's just not like maybe as smart as what I want. I, I seriously said that to myself. She may ask me as smart as I want, which anyone who knows Suzanne, you, you know, I married up and she didn't luck out. Right. So, and I remember coming home and we were in the car driving and I was really into a band called Wilco, and they had an album come out in the late 90s called Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. And for me, this was like the, like truly, if it wasn't Radiohead, it was Wilco. That was, those were the two bands at the time. And I was just thinking, she doesn't know who this band is. She was playing Wilco in the car. And then I was like, oh my gosh, you're playing Wilco. This is incredible. And then she's like, yeah, I just really love this album. And then she started walking me through like every song on the album and how it built on each other and the like 
artistry she saw with it and the meaning. And by the end of it, I was like, dear Lord, I got to marry this woman. <laughs> like that, well, that just sealed the deal. Wilco got us married. That's, that's what I believe. Um, and then I remember we got engaged on Mount Sinai. You've heard that before. But on the whole walk down, I thought, oh my God, what have I done? And it was like, it was as if I'd stepped into a room and shut the door and there was no back door. And I was just like running everywhere to try to find the back door. And I knew I had kind of sealed my fate. Now, here's the thing. That's not about Suzanne. That was about me. Like I was, I was looking for a back door. And that stuck with me for years in our marriage. I was always trying to find a back door, an exit strategy. Here's someone that's not making me happy enough or not fulfilling me enough or someone who just gets in the way, someone who wants to like have their opinions and they affect me. Like I didn't want any of that. And constantly I found myself thinking of the D word, like divorce. Like um, I remember even telling her, this is a really shameful thing on me, but it's important that you can just kind of hear someone up front talking about this, to be honest. Like I remember telling her one time early in our marriage, like, I'm just, I just want you to divorce me. I just want you to divorce me because it's not working out. Like, you're not what I want. I'm not what you want. This isn't going to work out. Let's just kind of move on because we got to be like simpatico and we married unwisely and it's just not going to work out. I said that. And then immediately after that, we started doing counseling because we just knew we needed help. I knew I needed help. But that was a narrative that stuck with us for the longest time. It took us years before we finally realized, like, we can be in this together. Now, this morning, I want us to talk about this idea of looking for a back door, looking for a way out. And I know we don't want to talk about something like divorce. This isn't a hot, sexy topic on a Sunday morning. But Jesus believes this is very important. And as we're walking the Sermon on the Mount, we have to address the things he addresses. Because Jesus believes that these things here that he's saying are like essential to the world being elevated to what it was always meant to be. A place of flourishing and of blessing, a place of shalom. So we're going to dig in. And I want to say just one more thing here. I am a child of divorce. My mom was married three times. Everyone in my family has been divorced at least once. That's all I grew up in. That's all I ever saw was divorce. So I have a lot of empathy for anyone here who either is divorced or is considering divorce or is even a product of divorce. I want you to know I have a lot of empathy. But there's also a challenge I want to give us on the front end because your tendency, when we start talking about some hard things here, your tendency is, good, is to want to check out, like to get away from this moment because you don't want to feel like the fear or the guilt or the shame, whatever it may be, and it's really important we let Jesus speak for himself. And it's also really important we have enough humility to sit underneath his teaching, especially if we're going to call him our Lord. So I just want to encourage you this morning, like, sit tight. Don't run away. When you find yourself wanting to, just, just hold on, okay? Because we'll, we'll get to, like, you'll get to a place where you can find that there's room for you, even if this is part of your story. But I just don't want us to run away from what could really be significant for us as a church to consider. So let's start by just diving right in. Two things. One, what is Jesus trying to say? Like, what does he believe? And then, like, the second thing is, what do we do with that? So what is Jesus saying? And then what do we do with what he's saying? So first, what is he saying? Verse 31 says, And it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, this is... Uh, something that's not really familiar to us. 
So we need to kind of go back and see what he's referencing. It's actually in Deuteronomy 24, and I'm going to put just the passage here that Jesus is referencing here. It says in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, when a man takes his wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, might not take her again to be his wife. Now, that's a lot of words, a lot of words that we're going. I have no idea what that means, and I'm already wanting to check out. Here's what you need to know. Divorce in the first century, but even like for the thousand, two thousand years before that, was a hot topic. Like, divorce has always been a hot topic in culture, no matter what culture you're in. And so, this passage is referencing something that happened at our time period here at least over 3,500 years ago when Moses is pinning, or not pinning, <laughs> chiseling these things down, whatever it may be, to God's people. And Jesus is referencing this after that moment 1,500 years later. And we're talking about it now 2,000 years after Jesus talked about it. That divorce, what does it mean? What does it look like? What are the consequences? Has always been a hot topic. And at this time in history for Jesus, it was like really a big deal. Now, you have to understand, Jesus did not just pop up out of nowhere and then start bringing all these incredible teachings and people go, I've never heard that before and that's incredible. No, Jesus was a product of his culture, of his environment. And at this time in history, in first century AD in Jerusalem and Judea and all of Palestine, like you had voices that people would listen to, religious voices. It's like preachers. Right? Today, if you are a follower of Jesus, you may, have two, you may have two or three different preachers or people you study or books you read of different authors, whatever it may be, people who are shaping spiritual culture. It was the same thing then, but they had different rabbis, and these rabbis had large platforms. And there was at least seven during Jesus' day. But the two main rabbis of Jesus' day that was influencing culture the most was Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. And they really couldn't have been more opposite. Rabbi Hillel was a very uh, liberal, lenient uh, rabbi. He was constantly trying to find ways and looking at the law to help people kind of take it in more easily. Rabbi Shammai was considered a very, like, narrow, very… And I don't… When I'm using words like liberal conservative, I don't mean it the way we talk about today. I just mean, like, he was very conservative and going, actually, not only do the law say this, it means beyond that. And so, you kind of had these two different sides you could lean on of Hillel or Shammai. And up until 10 AD, Rabbi Hillel and his Pharisees or his rabbis, his disciples, were the ones who oversaw the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was a group of Pharisees who basically, like, were the most religious elite of all the religious leaders. And they kind of ran like a political, like, dog and pony show in, in Jerusalem. They were the ones kind of making all these big decisions that would trickle down. Rome gave them permission. So, up to that point, all the rabbis, the Pharisees of Hillel were the ones who were in the Sanhedrin. 
But then when Hillel died, there was a new regime that rose up with, with Shammai. And then all the, all the Pharisees who are now part of the Sanhedrin were running the show with Shammai. And the conversation constantly within Jewish culture is, where do you land? Like, are you with Hillel or are you with Shammai? And so Jesus is in that context. Matter of fact, for the next several weeks, most everything we talk about is something that Hillel or Shammai was arguing through in that time. And what we'll find is, over the next few weeks, you'll see Jesus actually lands more often than not with Hillel. But on this, he lands more with Shammai. Now, there's a, a quote here I want to give you from a, a theologian and historian who kind of even gives you an idea of these different views of the houses of Hillel and Shammai, and even a third one called Akiba. It says this, the house of Shammai say, a man should divorce his wife only because he has found grounds for it in unchastity, since it is said, because he has found in her indecency in anything. That's what Shammai says, the house of Hillel say, even if she spoiled his dish, since it is said, because he has found in her indecency of anything. So Shammai said, like, you're not getting divorced unless this woman has cheated on you, all right? Unless there's something that she's, she's, had, she's committed adultery on you. But then Hillel's like, listen, even if she burns your food, you can like walk out if you need to on this. All right? That's what Hillel was saying. And then a third person, Akiba, says, even if, if he found someone else prettier than she, since it is said, and it shall be if she find no favor in his eyes. That would also be like an American version, right? So, like, we have, like, nobody's getting divorced over, in, 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 in Northern America, nobody's getting divorced over, like, well, she burnt my food, that was the last straw, I'm done. No one's saying that. But like they are saying, well, I just kind of lost a spark there, and I have a spark over here I'd rather have, right? And that's what Akiba is saying. So these three. Now, let's go back to Jesus, because let's see what Jesus says. Look at verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, Jesus, with all that in context, he's actually trying to speak to something very specific here. This piece of paper that a person would give the other, so that usually the male would give the female, the husband would give the wife, is called a get. Everybody say get. All right, so a get was an ancient like document, and it was drawn up in the Sanhedrin, and then you'd bring a lawyer in there, and then they would say, okay, I want to divorce you because you burnt my, you know, food. Uh, like that, I will not have lamb charred anymore because of you, woman, all right? And so I'm going to sign this, and then I'm going to give it to you, and now, okay, now you, you don't want to sign it, I know, but you've got to sign it. Like, it was a complete unjust way to go about things that you could say that you could get divorced, and even if you wanted the divorce, the other person didn't want it, they would have to take it. Now, that would put a woman in a very precarious and unjust situation because women at this time in history were not empowered, were not given a voice like in Greek culture to like make their own living. When we see the gospel expand into the West and through Greece, we're going to find more and more women like Lydia 
who can take care of themselves, um, who actually are helping like bankroll ministry for the apostles. But women at this time, for the most part, were not in a position to take care of themselves. So that means a woman would actually need a man to take care of her. And if the man left her and divorced her, then she would now be left to either have to beg or be a prostitute or go back to her family, which would be all very shameful scenarios. Now, it wasn't just, though, from a man to a woman. What was interesting is, is that when Moses speaks these words in Deuteronomy 24, he actually meant it to be able to go both ways, that there were women who could divorce men. Now, that was very rare, and it was still very hard and very shameful for a woman to do that, but a woman could divorce a man. Now, here's what Jesus, though, is trying to say. He's saying to them, listen, if you want to get a divorce, you could get a divorce, but only based off of adultery. If you do it for any other reason, your divorce actually will not be legitimate. And then what you're going to do is you're going to sign a document, and then you're going to make this woman sign a document, but it's not a legitimate document. And then you're going to send her into another marriage to take care of herself, where she's going to be the person looked at as being an adulterer, but you're really the problem. See, Jesus is looking at something that's very unjust, saying you can't just get divorced for whatever reason you want. He's actually like pointing the barrel back at men, at these leaders, saying, you actually don't get to get divorced for whatever reason you want. And anytime you do, you are the one that's committing adultery because you're the one putting your wife in a situation where she's going to take care of herself. Of course, she's going to have to get remarried. Of course, she's going to have to find someone to help take care of her. He's actually saying to you, shame on you, men. Shame on you for putting women in this situation. He goes, this is not right, and this is not just. He's speaking to an unjust situation in a culture that keeps trying to find loopholes and ways for people to get whatever they want, whenever they want. So he's pressing in on them, and he's saying to them, listen, this has got to change. But there's more that Jesus has to say. Look in Matthew 19. I'll put it on the screen for you. If you, if you want to turn, you can. Matthew 19 says, verse 6, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. For from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. So it starts with these religious leaders coming to Jesus, and they're trying to corner him. What do you say about divorce, they say? Like, do you land with Hillel or Shammai? And Jesus is like, eh, not really either. Like, I'm going to take it further, because even Shammai is trying to say that you can, like, still maybe, even if they haven't really committed adultery, if you just want to find some kind of thing that could be like adultery to you, like indecency in some way, if they're even looking at another person and you don't like the way they looked at them, you can sign that and send them off. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Like this thing, there's more commitment to this thing than what you're giving. And so then Jesus says this, and what's interesting, if you look after this in verse 10, Jesus' disciples say to him, well, then why would anyone get married? Like, if you got to be this committed, like, why would anybody do this? Like, if you don't have a back door to get out of at some point in time, Jesus, like, this is too much of a, like, ethic you're putting on people. And then Jesus is saying to them after that, like, 
I get it. And there's going to be a lot who can't do this. There's going to be a lot who won't be able to walk with me down this path. So Jesus lays the gauntlet down. But I want us to explore a little bit because there's always with Jesus more layers, more than what meets the eye, right? So there's always more for Jesus. There's a couple of layers here. Look first that there's a layer that he's saying there are always legitimate reasons for divorce. There are always legitimate reasons. That's actually what Jesus is saying. There are always legitimate reasons for divorce. For this term, sexual morality, it's this word pornea. Pornea is where we get our word porn, pornography from, okay? And the idea behind pornography or the idea behind pornea is this idea of sexual defilement. Sexual defilement, really heavy. Like what pornea does is it takes something that is good and meant for um, fruition and beauty in the world and it inverts it, right? So even when you think about porn today, pornography today, it's something that actually is very sacred and something that's very important to humans for us to be able to thrive and live with one another in holy ways, but it's taken and exploited. And it's turned into something that's actually very abusive. So porn always takes something sexually, inverts it. So that's what pornea is. It is sexual defilement. But it actually is kind of a loaded concept because this idea of pornea would bring back references for any Jewish listener all the way back to the book of Leviticus, chapter 18. And we won't turn there, but the book of Leviticus, chapter 18, 18 is wild. Like, there's some wild stuff in there, right? And the idea behind it is it's a list of all these, like, different, like, sexual sins and, and whatnot. I mean, like, like, fathers sleeping with daughters and all people sleeping with animals. It's like all kind of crazy stuff that's happening in there. And yet, the whole point of that passage was to expose, like, indecency, defilement, that whenever you are interacting in these ways, whenever a father is interacting this way with his daughter, it's actually stripping of dignity. We talked about that last week, stripping of dignity. That's what lust is. And so Jesus is saying here, like all these things that are bringing indecency and defilement, all these things that are bringing down your humanity, they're actually very abusive. He's actually trying to get across to them, not just sexual sin, he's trying to bring across like sexual abuse. Let me, let me kind of explain it this way. Any person, if you're married and your spouse has an addiction to pornography, you actually, from what we see in Scripture, you actually have grounds for divorce. That sounds crazy, I know. But if they have a pornography addiction, then you have grounds for divorce. Now, here's the point, though. Is that person wanting to get help? And if they're wanting to get help and they're wanting to see change or put all the hard work that needs to go into it, then there's hope. That means that person's not wanting to live in the same abusive system. But what Jesus is trying to get across here is any person who's willing to stay in this defilement of their body or even your body, whether it's mentally, emotionally, physically, whatever it may be, that is abuse. And there are always grounds for divorce when there's abuse. I want you to hear me say this. If you are in an abusive relationship, you have the right and may even need to get out of that relationship. That's very important you hear me say that. That if you're in some kind of mental, physical, emotional, spiritual abuse, if you're with a person, a partner who is actually not willing to change and not put the work in, and they're trying to crush you because that's what they're doing, they're trying to crush you in those ways, 
then that is a person who is acting in very evil ways. It's not what you want to hear, I know, if you're the person who's not willing to change, but that's actually something you need to hear if you're the person with the person not willing to change. Jesus is very clear here. Sexual defilement, abuse in any ways like this must be dealt with, and there are grounds for divorce. And we have a culture that's inundated with codependency. We have people and spouses staying in marriages where the other spouse, and it goes both ways, trust me, whether it's a male or female, all right? We have both sides here that are not willing to change. They're not putting the work in, or they don't want to have a quote-unquote accountability partner show up to church, say a few I'm sorry's, and then get back and do the same thing the next week. That's insanity. That's addiction, and that's abusive. And Jesus is saying that's not okay. What you need to hear me say is, if that's what you're dealing with, there needs to be work done around that. If you're the one that's living in addiction, if you're the one living in a way that's not willing to change, you're putting a weight on your spouse that Jesus is saying is not okay. And here's what it is with sin. I want you to hear me say this as well. Sin, so many times we hear the word sin, we're like, you sinner, you horrible person, you're going to hell, you sinner. Listen, the word sin in Greek means to miss the mark. That's what it means. I'm not trying to water it down, but I'm just saying, like, that's what it means. It means that you are not living in the true um, nobility and purpose of your humanity. That whenever you sin, you are unweaving what God has put together in His goodness and love here in this world. And it's like you start taking a thread from a sweater, maybe. And let's say this thread starts down here, and you start pulling the thread and pulling the thread. Well, eventually, if you keep pulling the thread, what's going to happen? You're not going to have a sweater on anymore. You're not going to have a shirt. You're going to end up naked. You're going to end up being very shameless. You're unweaving what God has tried to put together for goodness in this world. That's what sin does. It unweaves all that God has made for His goodness and glory and for our goodness and for our own glory. So, if you are dealing with this, there's hope. You can be forgiven, but the point is, do you want to keep living those ways? So, Jesus is saying there are legitimate reasons for divorce, but there's also, He's saying, a higher ideal, a higher ethic that He really wants us to appeal to. Notice, go back here for a second to, I think it was verse 4, but look back in the middle. We'll put put that passage from Matthew 19 back up. Notice when Jesus says, but from the beginning, it was not so. What does He mean there? From the beginning, it was not so. He's not talking about Moses. He's talking about something that goes beyond that. He's actually talking about creation. Here's what Jesus is trying to say. You will always be living with the bare minimum and looking for a back door in every relationship that you're in until you go back to what the whole purpose of relationships are for. We have to go back to creation. Now, what happens with creation? That story, that narrative. God's people have been freed from slavery. They've been freed from physical, spiritual, emotional, even sexual abuse for over 400 years because that's what slavery brings. No such thing as good slavery. So, slavery brought that into God's people, into the Israelites' life over 400 years. They were inundated with stories that told them that their lives didn't matter that they were a piece of junk, that the gods hated them, 
And those stories would be compounded on them and pushed down on them to make them want to just keep building the brick and building the pyramids and do whatever they had to do for the Egyptians. Until Yahweh shows up. Moses comes with the power of Yahweh. God's people are set free, and now they're free into the wilderness, and they're wandering around. They get to this place called Mount Sinai. God gives them the law through Moses. And rabbis and Jewish historians for centuries after that would look back at that moment and call it a wedding ceremony, that this is where God and His people got married. And then the rest of the Old Testament is filled with stories of God saying, I will never leave you. I am your husband. You are my wife. And whatever it takes us to work, that's what I'm going to do. But Jesus is saying there's another story in there, not just one where God created people for His goodness and glory. There's another story in there of people getting married, of people committing to one another. Now, marriage was this visual and this metaphor used in this story here to symbolize that marriage is the height of commitment. If you really want to lay all the cards on the table, push all the chips in, then marriage is it. That's what the Bible's saying. It doesn't mean that you're, it doesn't mean that you'll miss out on life if you're not married. It just means like if you really want to like get into this whole commitment thing, just try marriage. That's what it's saying. And that the story though is that a commitment of what it means for two people to come together, to leave family members and say, we're going to do this together. There's even the story of commitment from God to His people. He goes, I'm going to create you. I'm going to create you for beauty and wonder, for my glory. I'm committed to you. It was a story that told them they were incredibly valuable and had tremendous worth. It was a story that told them because they were so valuable that God was committed to them. And Genesis 1 and 2 was a story that told them that the best way they could have the same kind of commitment in life, the commitment that God has to them, is for them to commit those ways to one another. This is the story of Genesis 1 and 2, one of commitment. And Jesus is saying, that's the higher ideal. He goes, you're missing out on it. If you're trying to find loopholes to get out of something, you're missing the whole point. The point of marriage wasn't for your spouse to never burn your food. The point of marriage wasn't for your spouse to make you sexually satisfied. The point of marriage was commitment. That was it. I'm sorry if that's not what you were fed growing up. I'm sorry that's not what your parents told you growing up. I'm sorry that they weren't taking a biblical understanding and narrative and instead took on a worldly understanding and narrative. Because constantly we're inundated that you got to have the spark to be married. You just, you just really got to be really attracted to each other to be married. Let me say something. That's great, and if that can continue in your life, awesome. But anyone who believes that life's supposed to stay up here where it's always amazing, that person is an idiot, all right? Like, that is not how life works. I'm sorry. That's not how the world works. You don't get to stay at, this is so amazing. I want to continue with this forever. And then when it drops off, you're like, well, where's my get? Maybe we need to sign some divorce papers here. Maybe I need to kind of look elsewhere and see if someone else can give me that high again. The point of marriage is commitment. The point of relationships are commitment. And Jesus is saying to us that if you don't keep that in mind, you're always going to try to find a back door. You're always going to look for a way out. So this is Jesus' ethic to us. No back doors. No way out, except if there is some type of abuse 
that's happening in this relationship. And here's what I want to say. If you are in a marriage right now that is abusive, I am so sorry. And I want you to know that we as elders are here to be with you and help you. Like there's no flat answer to this at the end of the day. There's no flat answer to this at the end of the day. Like, well, just leave them and get divorced. No, because people are people, and it takes like a one-on-one. You have to work through it together. You cannot, you do not have the right to walk away here this morning and go, well, he said you're abusive to me, so I'm out. That's not how it works. I really believe that until you start bringing in, whether it's church leaders or people that are mentors, people that you really surrender and submit to and their voice, until you do that, you do not have a right really to get married, I mean, to get divorced, at least in God's eyes. Sure, under the state, do whatever you want. But if you really want to deal with this, it's going to take the two of you in your marriage wanting to come and work through it to get the help needed. And if you are divorced, I want you to know something. I'm very sorry. I'm really sorry. I know that that wasn't an easy decision for you. I know you wrestled with that a lot. I know you didn't wake up one day and say, well, I'm done here and I'm moving on. I know there were years and years and years and years and years compounded in your life of difficult conversations, of being hurt, of being lonely, all those kind of things. And I'm sorry. And I want you to know something. If you're in Christ, you're forgiven. Okay? That's how it works. You're forgiven. You don't have to live with that guilt anymore. But I want you to hear me say this as well. The common denominator in all of your marriages, whenever how many times you get married, will always be you. And until you learn to deal with you, until you actually deal with the thing, see, your spouse wasn't the problem, you were the problem because you didn't really understand what it means to live with acceptance of life. That if your spouse wasn't abusive to you physically, emotionally, sexually, or spiritually, and you got out, then that was more about you than it was your spouse. And that means if you get married again, you're going to take it into the next marriage. Because until you deal with that thing, because wherever you go, there you are. Until you deal with that, it's not going to change. This person you're going to marry next will not be the great hope for you and change your life. You're going to bring all the destruction back into the marriage once again. But there is hope, and you can change. So that's what Jesus believes. That's what he has to say. So what do we do with that? Big stuff. What do we do with that? I would say a couple of things. One, we've got to shut the back door. Like, until you shut the back door in your relationships, meaning until you quit looking for an exit strategy, you will never experience the fruit of what marriage can bring in your life. And not even marriage, of what a committed, wonderful relationship can bring into your life. Until you quit trying to find exit strategies, you're never going to see what this could be. That was a decision I had to make in my marriage with Suzanne years ago. Like, I just eventually got to the place where it's insanity. Like, she's not the problem, I'm the problem. There was a lot of, through my addictions, a lot of abuse where I had to go put the work in. And she has her own work to put into it, but she's not the one, she's not the one up here talking, so I won't, I won't air her, uh, her dirty laundry out here. I'm the one that had to put in the work. And until I was willing to do that, the back door wasn't shut. Whatever you have to do to take care of you, you do that. And get that back door shut 
Because until you do, you will miss out on all that God intends for a committed, loving, and faithful relationship. And here's the thing. I want you to hear me say this. Pain is not a wrong thing to experience in marriage. Matter of fact, it's just what marriage is. If you want to know that you're married, that means you wake up to, oh, this is so hard. It hurts. Like, that's it. That's marriage. It's just hurt. And some joy, but mainly hurt. That's it. So, if, if you have any ideals for it, like, I just want to, like, shoot them all down right now, all your hopes and dreams. I want them to dash on the rocks of reality right now. It's just not going to work out the way that you want. It's going to suck. They're not going to live up to your potential of what you want in life. And at the end of the day, you're going to be the problem. <laughs> have a great marriage. Now, here's the thing, though. There's a lot of joy that comes out of that. You're like, you are insane. Get this guy off. There's a lot of joy that comes with that. There's a lot of joy when you put in the work. Let me tell you something. Suzanne and I almost got divorced uh, 10 years ago. 10 years ago? Uh, no, no, no. More like eight years ago because of wallpaper. No joke, wallpaper. All right? Now, here's the thing about Suzanne. We can't just, like, move into a house and be like, let's just, like, live it the way it is and be happy and satisfied. Suzanne's like, no, we're going to be an HGTV, and we got to do all these things to it, and we have to make it immaculate, and it's got to be my own style. But don't you already like that color? Yes, but it's not the color that I want on there the exact way that I want it, so therefore we're going to paint over it. But isn't that going to take a lot of time and money? Yes, it is. Let's get going. Like, that was like, that's been our whole existence it's so painful, right? It's so painful. And like, so I remember one time we had this like small square little like hallway, just small. And she's like, I want to wallpaper it with this textured wallpaper. I begged the woman. I pleaded with the woman, please don't do this. This is a bad thing. Y'all, we got one strip into it and we had the biggest fight of our lives up to that moment. She walked out of the house and didn't come back for the rest of the day right? And I think I was up on the couch for like three days after that. And we both decided, leave the wallpaper there. I'm not joking. We didn't touch that wallpaper again for two years. It stayed in the floor. Nobody touched it. Because we're like, if we pick that up, that thing is possessed by demons. And we're going to break this thing up. <laughs> like, that's what we believe. So, here's what happened Friday. This is how, much, this is how far we've come. Friday, Suzanne's like, let's take the whole family to Ikea. Let's take you and Charlotte and go to Ikea. And I'm like, dear Lord, that's a death trap. <laughs> no, we can't do this. Like, let's take a three-year-old who hasn't taken a nap and is hungry to walk around and be trapped for two hours? No, I don't think so. But you know what I said? Okay, let's go do it. So we go. And, y'all, we didn't have a blow-up until halfway through, but we had a blow-up. Uh, I think we saw Terry there, and then Terry, right after we saw you, we had a blow-up. So there you go. You missed out on it. Um, and so I'm talking like bodies being thrown around, you know what I mean? Like wailing and flailing, gnashing of teeth. Somebody like, like was, you know, like blood coming out. It was a horrible scene in the middle of Ikea. We sat there for like an hour discussing what I call the infinity hurt loop. Okay? You know, you know this. Trust me. Here's how the infinity hurt loop goes hey, you really hurt me when you said that to me earlier. Well, you really hurt me that you just said that to me now. 
well, you just really hurt me that you listened to my hurt in the first place. Well, you know what? Here's some curse words. You hurt me even more. Like it goes on and on and on and on and on and on. Like, and those, those, those infinity like hurts, those loops, they go on for a while. Am I right? Right? You're with me. Tom, you got any of those? All right. Thank you very much. Not that much. So here's the thing. Like those hurt loops go on and on. They never stop. And I want you to know something. That's okay. Hurt's not a wrong thing to experience in marriage. It's actually a very normal thing to experience in marriage. So if you keep thinking like you're like really got a bad marriage because you're hurt so often, relax. Like you're, you're normal, right? I mean, you, you may be really sinful, need a lot of work, but you're normal. You may not listen to your spouse and you keep trying to be really selfish, but that's normal. And you can work on that. But here's what's not okay in marriage is harm. See, harmful people are abusive. Hurtful people are just people, like you hurt, and then you express your hurt, and the other person owns that they've hurt you, and then you repent and you move forward. Harmful people, though, are never allowed to be wrong. Like they never allow themselves to be wrong. They're always right. They're always one making you feel like you're crazy. No, 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 that's all your fault. No, 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 that's just you. And it becomes psychologically, mentally, maybe even physically, sexually, like you are somehow guilting your spouse into sex constantly, and they don't want that, like, those kind of people are harmful. And if that's the relationship you have, you have to work on that. You have to go get help for that, because that's actually not something that God's okay with. But it is okay to be hurt, and it is part of life. That's life. So one, we got to shut the back door. And when you experience hurt, you don't have to go look for the back door. But here's the second thing. We have to risk participation. We have to risk participation. Madeline Engel said this. This is in your bulletins. If we commit ourselves to one person for life, that is not, as many people think, a rejection of freedom. Rather, it demands the courage to move into all the risks of freedom and the risk of love, which is permanent, into that love, which is not possession, but participation. To risk love is to risk letting another participate in your life. And there's kind of two ways of participation, the way it happens, the way it works. One is, it's a risk of letting them them participate by coming to indwell your life. Like marriage is letting another person come into your life and just dwell there. Just take up space, you know, like a big old dude sitting in coach. Like, I got, a, I got some room here. And you're like, oh, my God, you take up so much room. You're indwelling in my space. Like, yeah, that's what it takes, infringing upon your personal time. That's what, that's what participation looks like. And you know what you're going to have when that person indwells in your space? Feelings, lots of them. And you're going to want to run away from them. They're going to be too much for you at times. You're going to be like the constant like hurt locker. It's never going to stop. You're going to be lonely. You're going to be angry. And that's going to be normal because that's what participation looks like. That's what risking participation looks like. But it's not just letting another person come and dwell in your space. It also means letting that other person come and interpenetrate your space. And what that word simply means is to mix with you, to mix into you. Like, you had dreams and aspirations when you got married. 
But now that you're married, those dreams and aspirations, they actually should change. If you had the same dreams and aspirations after you got married, you're not married. You just have a roommate. If you still have your ideas about how life should look and work and be, all the ways you're going to get to in life and your, your spouse is just kind of like along for the ride, you're not, you're not married. You married a roommate that you guys hook up sometimes together. That until you learn to let the other interpenetrate your life, to mix it together, to let their dreams become your dreams, until you do that, you're not actually risking participation in love. And you're going to be left with wanting to get out of it. And here's what's interesting about this word participation. We see it in the Trinity. The Trinity allows the other to infringe on the other. It's like this dance. Matter of fact, the word that the early church fathers used for the Trinity was perichoresis. And perichoresis means a round dance or a circle dance, perichoresis. And the idea is that the Trinity would dance in a circle with each other. Just keep dancing and dancing, participating with one another. A celebration, inner penetration, inner dwelling of the other space. That's the only way the early church fathers could describe the beauty of the Trinity. And then there was a painting in the 15th century by a Russian artist named Andrei Rublev. And I want to show it to you. It's called the Trinity. And it actually is meant to depict um, the visitors, the angels, quote-unquote angels, that came to sit down and have a meal with Abraham. And the idea that Rublev was trying to get across was the Trinity was there. The Trinity was there. Now, I want you to take a second and just look at that painting. It's beautiful. You know, they say that it takes only one second for a negative impression, for, for a negative event to make an impression, but it takes at least 15 seconds for something beautiful to make an impression on your life. Just take that in while I'm talking. Now, I want you to see that as curators over time were working with this painting, they kept noticing something. See at the bottom there, there's like a little box, the table. You see the table, and there's like a little rectangle, like a little box there. They kept looking at that, wondering what is going on with that, with that little area. Because they found there was some kind of residue on it, and they didn't want to mess with it too much. They'd kind of scratch at it and scratch, like, what is this? They eventually learned that that little area, like the residue on it, was glue. Glue. Which led them to this understanding that what used to be glued onto there was a mirror. Because here's what Rublev wanted you to experience when you walked up to the painting. That when you walked up, there'd be a mirror in front of you, and you'd see yourself, and you'd realize something. You just got invited into perichoresis. You just got invited into a circle dance. See, this is the model of marriage. Someone walks up and they're like, there's a mirror. You want to join? I sure do. Circle dance. Hey, this is really difficult. This is going to be really hard. It's going to take a lot from us to be this committed to shut the back door. You want to do it together? Let's go for it. Circle dance. Because then you realize something. You have a model for circle dance, for your circle dance. And then you realize that you've been invited into that circle dance, and then you invite that trinity, that perichoresis into your circle dance, and now we're all just dancing together. See, that's what the gospel is trying to give us, a circle dance, a trinity that says you're invited in on this, 
And this is going to free you up to realize something that no matter how difficult it gets for you, because let me tell you something, within the Trinity, like, Jesus takes up a lot of space, all right? Like, he's just a big old boy. He takes up space. And so does the Holy Spirit, and so does the Father. They all take up space, but they're all saying to the person, no, your turn. No, no, your turn. No, you go. No, no, you go. No, after you. No, you go. They're always highlighting the other. That's what commitment looks like, and that's the only way a marriage is going to sustain and not just survive but thrive, is if it's willing to say that to one another. Let's invite each other into this thing. So here's the deal. We're going to come take communion. And if you have a marriage on the rocks, you came to the right place this morning. If you have something that you think is on its last leg, you showed up to the right place. And it's not going to be because I'm going to pray for you or someone else. It's going to be because of this table right here. Because this table, this communion says that no matter who you are and where you are and what you're in, there's always hope. There's a circle dance for you to jump in on right here and right now. That no matter how much you're going through in your marriage, listen, if you are being abused or you are the abuser in your marriage, there's space and room for you right here. Yeah, we're going to do more work after this. And yeah, you're going to have to be willing to invite like leaders, elders, deacons, others into your lives to work with you. But there's room. There's hope. But it's going to take a lot of effort. It's going to take the realization that this will hurt. It'll be painful. But until we shut those back doors, we will never be able to experience this kind of circle dance. And lastly, for those who are a product of divorce, whether you have been divorced or you came from a family of divorce, this table also gives you a lot of hope because it says that grace always outruns our sins. It says there's always more room for you to double down in life and say, I'm going to do this with God. That I don't want to bring the same me into the next marriage. I don't want to take the same traits I learned from these divorces in my life and then put it into the person I marry next and demand these weird things from them that really are more about me than it is about them. There's hope. Let's pray. So, Father, now we come to you and we come to the table to the... Um, embodiment of perichoresis. And I pray that you would now, um, by your presence, which you promise us here, come and move amongst our body. Gosh, this is a young church, and there's a lot of pain here, I know. And it's really easy to believe that just because we're young and married doesn't mean that, like, we don't have problems. Like, there are problems, and life is hard. So I pray that you give every person in this room just a whole lot of courage to show up to this table to partake of you and to enter into your perichoresis. In Jesus' name, amen.